pray. Father, we look to You and we ask for uh, You to uh, pour out Your Spirit. and uh, Indeed, as faith comes from hearing and hearing the Word of Christ, so I pray that as, uh, as we hear the Word of Christ not only read but also proclaimed, that You would cause our faith and trust in You to grow. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Is this working? Okay, there we go. It may surprise you to hear me say this, but our passage this morning, the passage that Jim just read, teaches us that one of the easiest things to do in the entire world is to become a Christian. Becoming a Christian is easier than learning a new skill like dribbling a basketball. It's easier than learning to cook. It's easier even to learn to recite your ABCs or to tie your shoes. Unfortunately, many churches have made it more difficult than it has than it is or has to be. Many churches require that a person walks down the aisle and prays with the pastor in front of the church. There's nothing in the Bible that requires such a practice. Other churches have an expectation that the person have an outward uh, display of deep emotion as a requirement of becoming a Christian. And it is deeply upsetting to me that churches seem to add requirements and expectations to the way that people become Christians. When they do that, what they're doing is adding barriers to the gospel. Becoming a Christian is an exceedingly easy thing to do, and we had better not do anything that could make it more difficult. Listen to Romans 10 verses 8 through 13 again. Listen to the requirements that God lays out through the Apostle Paul. Verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let me ask you, what did you hear in that passage that is difficult? It boils down to this. To become a Christian... You must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that He's the boss, that He's the King. And then believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and you will be saved. Confess and believe. That being said, what is there here this morning that is stopping any one of you who is not yet a Christian from becoming a Christian. What is there? 
Is there anything that would stop you right now? Now for those of you who have been listening to me the last couple of weeks as we studied Romans 9, you might be thinking, how did we get from the doctrine of election, which puts salvation completely in God's hands, to Romans chapter 10, which seemingly puts things in our hands and says that one of the easiest things to do in the entire world is become a Christian? Well, if you're asking that question, I'm glad you asked. Because it's a great question. The important issue that Paul is addressing is the reason for God's seeming rejection of the Jews in favor of the Gentiles. And his ultimate answer, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, is God's mercy. His mercy alone makes the difference. As he says in Romans 9, verses 15 and 16, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Well, that would suggest then, if it's all about God's mercy, it would suggest that the Jews are not responsible before God. Because, well, God decided to have mercy and He didn't decide to have mercy on, on others and where is the responsibility? And so that is the question that, um, that Paul is, is uh, raising here in Romans, Romans chapter 10. He says that the Jews are responsible before God. And... Uh, the fact that they don't believe the Gospel, the fact that they don't receive Jesus Christ, the fact that they look for other ways for being righteous rather than the righteousness of faith makes them culpable before God. So this message of Romans chapter 10 is a message that teaches us that human beings... All human beings, all fallen human beings, all spiritually dead human beings are responsible before God. God's sovereignty does not gobble up and swallow our responsibility. The message of Romans 10 is that the Israelites were trying very hard to attain salvation, but they refused to seek it according to God's direction. Look at verses 2 and 3 in chapter 10. Paul says, I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So they're zealous, zealously seeking after this righteousness um, that they would need in order to be saved. But he says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So they're looking for righteousness, but they want their own that comes from obedience to the law. They want their own by their good works. They want their own um, that comes from their their, uh, good intentions and their good actions. And... They insist on trying to establish their own righteousness by obedience rather than receiving God's righteousness 
that God was offering to them and is continuing to offer to them by faith. See, the Jews zealously sought to keep the law. But even they knew it was impossible. They were born as sinners, just like we are sinners. They could not keep the law inwardly or outwardly. But instead of fleeing to God for mercy, which is what they should have done, when they realized that they could not keep the law, their their response should have been to flee to God for mercy. But instead, what they did was they redefined the law to make it easier for them to obey. And that's why Jesus was so mad at the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. When you read the Gospels, he is he's spitting angry at them. And the reason is they've redefined the law. They've dumbed the law down. The problem is the law is a reflection of God's holiness and His righteousness. And in dumbing down the law they are also calling into question God's righteousness and His holiness. And so, uh, listen to Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. He says, Whoever therefore relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do, do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And in Matthew 23, Jesus condemned the the Pharisees and the teachers of the law for being hypocrites. They did only enough to appear outwardly righteous. So He says in chapter 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's, uh, dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you are all, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And so they were redefining the law so that they would, they, they took the laws, they dumbed them down, and then they made them, um, easier so that they could have a better chance of obeying them. And so that Jesus calls them lawless because they've completely destroyed God's holy law. And again, their goal was to establish a righteousness on their own, apart from the righteousness that comes by faith. You know, that's what every religion does. Every religion is guilty of the same hypocrisy and lawlessness. Every religion offers a set of commandments that people are to follow in order to help themselves uh, elevate themselves up to God. The problem is these commandments, there's always uh, provisions and conditions that, that uh, allows people who are less than righteous, less than obedient even to these commandments to, to climb over them. But the idea is they climb halfway up to God and God comes down and meets them halfway. And every false religion has that teaching. Even um, even false sects within Christianity have that teaching. Try and bring God down and bring down His righteousness, and then exalt man, and um, so that uh, so that we can kind of meet halfway. And it's uh, it's wrong, and Jesus Christ condemned it. 
There may be some of you who are seeking to base your own entrance into heaven on things you've done or sacrifices you've made. But Paul's point is, is that you must have a perfect righteousness. A hit or miss righteousness is no righteousness at all. So look with me at verse 4. This is a very important verse. What Paul's doing is he's drawing upon his earlier discussion about justification by faith in chapters 3 and 4. And so he says in, in verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What Paul's saying is what I've been saying the past few minutes. Paul's not saying that our obligation to obey the law has ended. Uh, in fact, in, in Romans 3.31, rather we uphold the law. Or in Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 3 and 4, the Holy Spirit helps us to, to obey the law. But Christ is the end of the law in that when He came and lived a perfect life and obeyed the law perfectly in His heart, in His desires, in His motives, and in His actions, He fulfilled it. And then He went to the cross and on the cross, he became uh, he came under the curse of the law and paid the penalty that we deserve to pay. So in every respect, the law has ended as a means for righteousness. In fact, it never was a means for righteousness. And Paul makes this point in verse five, because in verse five, um, Paul says. Well, he quotes Leviticus 18, verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. In other words, Moses' point is, if a person wants to attain righteousness by observing the law, then you have to obey all of it. And uh, you must obey it perfectly. And of course, nobody has ever done that except the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Paul is saying Moses never taught that the law is a means for righteousness unless you are going to obey it perfectly. And then he continues to quote uh, Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 30 in verses 6 through 8. Um, Paul says, But the righteousness based on faith says, and now he's quoting from Deuteronomy verse thir- or chapter 30, Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Moses is speaking here. It's actually his final speech to the Israelites before he dies. Right at the end of, the, of, uh, of Deuteronomy, and he is giving them his, uh, his, his last sermon. And he's preaching to them about grace. And that's why Paul is uh, so interested in quoting Moses at this point. Because Moses was teaching a righteousness by faith rather than a righteousness that comes by observing the law. In the context of Deuteronomy 30, um, this difficult quotation about bringing Christ, who will descend into the abyss, who will ascend into heaven, and all this. All this makes sense within the context of Deuteronomy 30. 
In Deuteronomy 30, Moses started off by telling the people that it was a foregone conclusion that they were going to rebel against God. That they were going going to stray against Him throughout their entire history. Verses 1 and 2. In fact, because they were going to continue to stray, Moses told them, God's going to send you into exile. So, centuries before God sent them into exile, Moses told them that that would be the case because they were a rebellious and stiff-necked nation. But then he told them, I think it's around uh, verses 4 and 5 of Deuteronomy 30 that God would gather His people back to Himself. He would not always leave them in exile. Just going, for those of you in our Sunday school class, God, every time He talks about judgment, He holds His arms open and says, Return to Me. He's so good and compassionate and merciful. And so, uh, in regathering them back to Himself, in Deuteronomy verse six, or Deuteronomy thirty verse six, he says, "I will circumcise your hearts." He's going to circumcise the hearts and the hearts of their offspring, so that they will finally love and trust in Him. So Moses' sermon in Deuteronomy thirty: You're a rebellious people. You are going to continually throughout your history rebel against God. Uh, God's going to send you into exile and He's going to gather you back. And in gathering you back to Himself, He's also going to circumcise your hearts. The circumcision of hearts is what the New Testament calls regeneration and what Jesus calls being born again. And then after He says He's going to circumcise their hearts, He says, and then you will be able to obey My laws. Then you will be able to keep My commandments. Then you will love Me with all um, your hearts. And so it's only after their hearts have been changed will the Israelites stop rebelling and become obedient. So that's when Moses then... When, that's when Moses quotes what Paul... or Moses says what Paul quotes here in verses 6-8. through 8. And in that context, for people whose hearts have been circumcised for people who have been regenerated, for people who have been born again, well then salvation is easy because their hearts have been changed. Everyone whose heart has been regenerated, everyone who has been born again, who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And they will uh, believe uh, in their hearts or, conf- or confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord and they will believe in their hearts that God raised Him from the dead. So do you understand? It's a little bit of a convoluted way of understanding what Paul's saying here, but he's saying that salvation is exceedingly easy for everyone who, ha- who God has regenerated. Because it's their new nature. As they're hearing the Gospel... God gives them faith and they respond in faith because they have a new nature. That's what happened. What God's saying is going to happen to the Israelites. That's what happens to us. We're spiritually dead. We're children of wrath by nature. Um, we are opposed to God. But God makes us alive with Christ. And then we receive the Gospel as it is preached. And this is something that happens at the very same moment. As I am preaching... God 
hopefully if there are any of you who are here, He is opening your hearts to believe. And it doesn't have to be this emotional uh, experience. It may be, you know, the pastor, he makes a little more sense today than he did last week or the last ten years. And it may be, and it may be that I may be making a little more sense, but it may be that God is opening, is, is, is enlivening and regenerating your heart. You know, I, I sat in, in church for, um, 19, 20 years in this little country church up in Georgia and, uh, never really understood what the preacher had to say. And I wanted to blame it on the preacher. No, I was spiritually dead. I didn't have ears to hear. I didn't have a heart to believe. But it's instinctive for people who have been born again to believe in their heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. It is instinctive for them to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Um... I didn't warn my wife that I was going to do this. But we have this little... and She's not the illustration. Our dog is the illustration, actually. We have a, a little miniature schnauzer named Maxie. And Mandy loves loves to, to, to take the dog and, and, and cuddle with the dog and snuggle with the dog. You know, she never had a dog growing up. And so this is the first dog we've had. And, and she says, this, Maxie loves snuggling with me. Well, her saying that is, is is like putting a challenge before me. And I know that dog's nature. I go and get the chew toy and start squeezing it, and the little squeaker starts going off. And Mandy's holding the dog down, trying to make it look like the dog still wanting to snuggle with her. You know, and I'm holding up the, the little chew toy, and you can see the dog twisting and turning, trying to get out of, out of her grasp to go get the chew toy. And if the dog's not able to get away, then what my next step is I'll go to the front door and ring the doorbell. You know, and then that does it. If the dog is is uh, still not able to get away from, Ma- from Mandy's grip, it's barking and yelping and everything. It's the nature of the dog to go after the chew toy. It's the nature of our particular dog to bark when the, the doorbell rings. And so it is the nature of a of a of a regenerated person to call upon the name of the Lord. If you have never called upon the name of the Lord, it's because your nature has not been changed. It's because God has not done that miracle of grace in your heart. It's because you are still in your sins, still by nature a child of wrath. And if you're sitting here this morning and saying, I don't want to be a child of wrath, maybe that's God awakening you right now to call upon the name of the Lord, to confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is the Lord and that God raised Him from the dead. This message is a simple message. And because it's so simple, we should be proclaiming it more, um, more um, frequently and more fervently. In fact, verses 14 through 17, Paul takes a little aside. 
And he says, how then will they call on Him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? This simple message of Jesus Christ. God calls us to preach it. And He continues on, And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who, bre- who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's not some magical formula that you have to, to, to be giving people when you preach the gospel. All it is is telling them about the Lord Jesus Christ. Telling them that He is the Lord. That He left heaven and came here to earth to, to live here a perfect life and then uh, suffer a sacrificial death on the cross to become a curse for people who deserve to be cursed to stand in their place and call people to receive Him that's the righteousness by faith. When we push, when we place our trust in Jesus Christ, we receive God's righteousness because we receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of law, the righteousness of obedience. Reject it. Because it's only the righteousness of faith that comes through trusting in Jesus Christ. Now, I said that this message was a message of human responsibility. And so let me um, just finish with verses 18 through 21. Paul says, But I ask, have they not heard, talking about the Jews, have they not heard? Well, they had heard for 2,000 years the message of salvation. For 2,000 years they had heard uh, of God's grace. That's what he says. Indeed they have, verse 18, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And then Paul asks, but I ask, did Israel not understand? Well, he says, they were ignorant. But they were, their ignorance was a culpable ignorance. It was, they shut their eyes. They closed their ears. They hardened their hearts. It's not because the message was unclear. In fact, he says, uh, he quotes Moses again, I will make you jealous by those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And his point is, is that the Gentiles who knew nothing about this message, who for the, the, the previous 2,000 years before Jesus came, they were, talk about ignorance. They were ignorant. Talk about um ungodly and wicked. They were ungodly and wicked. But the Jews had been hearing this message from the time of Moses, even going back to Abraham, but certainly from Moses all the way through. But they refused to believe it because they chose a righteousness that would come from themselves. Am I overstating the case? 
No, I am not. Look at verses uh, 20 and 21. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So they are culpable. But then you say, what about Romans 9? It's all about God's mercy, isn't it? Yes, it is. God is 100% sovereign. He shows His mercy to whom He will show His mercy. And we are 100% responsible. Now, no one will believe unless God shows them mercy. But they are also responsible. Every time Israel failed to heed the message, it was because they did not want to hear the message. But yet, they were not. Uh, only the elect heeded that message. And you say, well, how can that be? How can we still be responsible as God's sovereign? Well, the question would be back to you. Who are you to answer back to God? God is God. There are things about Him that we will not be able to understand. Just because something doesn't make sense to us, just because something doesn't fit easily uh, between our ears, doesn't mean that it's untrue. Otherwise, we'd have to reject the Trinity because the Trinity doesn't fit between our ears. God is sovereign. We are responsible and culpable if we do not believe. It's a mystery. But there it is. And so if you here are here this morning and do not know Jesus Christ, you are culpable. And you will stand before God on the day of judgment and have to answer for, to Him why you did not believe. Why you did not place your trust in Jesus Christ. But if you are here and you do trust in Jesus Christ, it's not because you are smarter than some other people. It's all about His mercy and His grace. And if you're here this morning and you're saying, I don't have this salvation, but I want it. Well, you only want it because God is at working is at work in you. So call upon the name of the Lord because it says everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray together. Father, we're digging into um, things that are beyond us. Um, here is the Apostle Paul in one chapter saying it is all of God's mercy. In the very next chapter saying we are fully and completely responsible. We don't know how these two things fit together in your mind, but that's okay. Because those two things fit very nicely into our hearts by faith. And so we place our trust in You. Father, I pray that You would humble every Christian who is here by reminding them 
that they are simply recipients of Your mercy. God, I pray that You would uh, humble every person here who does not and has not and will not call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and so be saved. Humble them even now and uh, through that humbling, uh, draw them powerfully to the Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank You for Your grace. I understand why Paul says that um, his wisdom is too deep to be measured. Father, work among us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.